Well, it's pre-tribulation rapture call-in day. If you believe in a pre-trib rapture and like to tell me why, phone lines are wide open. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, our new book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture, releases tomorrow, Tuesday, March 19th. Uh, there's a lot of expectancy leading up to this, a lot of anticipation, a lot of discussion, both ways, people agreeing, people disagreeing. But this is something that we can differ on within the Lord. If I differ with you, don't take it personally. If you differ with me, I won't take it personally. What I will take exception to is either side branding those who differ heretics or non-believers or false teachers. These are areas within which we can have our disagreement. But today, phone lines are open wide. Now, let me tell you what's happening. Today, I'm welcoming calls from those who do believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, or there's a scripture that you're wondering about that seems to point to pre-tribulation rapture. That's what we're going to talk about today. Tomorrow, God willing, I say God willing because, number one, we don't know that we'll be here tomorrow. Number two, there may be some major news that we need to cover. But otherwise, the plan is to open the phones for a broad range of end times discussion. Maybe you don't even believe in this end times scenario with a tribulation. Maybe you're millennial or post-millennial or have a different end times view. So we'll open the phones for that as well right now today. If you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you don't need to explain in depth what your position is. You can just say that's your position or a verse you want to raise, and we'll get to as many calls as we can. Again, 866-348-7884. You say, why are you doing this? Well, I want to give you an opportunity to differ with me. I want to give you an opportunity to present your viewpoint. Maybe it'll challenge something I believe. Maybe I can explain to you why I don't see it that way. Maybe I can challenge something you believe, or maybe we can just help enlighten our general listening audience. All right. Before we do that, this past Friday's broadcast was pre-recorded, so this is the first time I have opportunity now on the air on this Monday, March 18th, to address the horrific massacre of Muslim worshipers in New Zealand. I wrote about it immediately. You can read my article, A Reasoned Response to the massacre of Muslims in New Zealand. It's a horrific crime. The fact that it takes place in a country like New Zealand, which is known for its peacefulness, known for its tranquility overall, with only several dozen murders in the last year or two uh, in New Zealand, maybe 30 or 40 murders a year, and then to take place in a mosque, it's, it's absolutely shocking, it's ugly, it's inexcusable, it's heinous, it's evil. There's no possible justification for anything like this. This is ugly and despicable and evil, period. Now you say, well, why do you need to respond to it beyond that? Because people are politicizing this. On the one hand, I actually read comments from a very select few people that were posted on my Facebook page on Ask Dr. Brown when I addressed this and denounced this. And some were saying, well, you got to do something about these Muslims. Or someone on Twitter 
said, well, yeah, this is bad, but let's face it, mosques are only breeding grounds for terrorism. That's all they do is breed terrorists there. Well, I, I will immediately delete comments like that or block people making such statements. There is no justification, period. This is slaughter. This is murder. This is massacre. This is evil, period. End of subject. Yes, there is a lot of Islamic terrorism around the world. Yes, 99% of suicide bombings taking place around the world are Islamic. Yes, the countries overall that most persecute Christians, if you look at the bulk, the largest number of countries that persecute Christians, they are largely Muslim. Yes, all of that is true. And this, nonetheless, is a slaughter, is a massacre. This is not a war where you've got enemy combatants. You have innocent people in a mosque that were not secretly planning terrorist attacks and were being stopped from thwarting, uh, stopped from carrying out a terrorist attack. These were people worshiping in their mosque, going about their business, as young as three years old, killed. So I absolutely reject any narrative that softens the evil of this at all. At the same time, I question how much the media as a whole cares about the slaughter of Muslims. Because the first moment I heard about this, I wondered, is this a Muslim? Why? Because the vast majority of Muslims being killed worldwide, I'm not talking about in the midst of, of, say, a war with America or something like that in Afghanistan, but I'm talking about the vast majority of Muslims being killed on a daily basis worldwide are Muslims killing Muslims. Suicide bombings of, of Shias against Sunnis or Sunnis against Shias or civil war between Shiites and Sunnis, okay? The fact of the matter is the vast majority of Muslims being killed are Muslims being killed by other Muslims. And I document that in my article. And I give examples. You don't hear a syllable about it on the media. Not a word. So is the media that concerned about the killing of Muslims? Or is it only Muslims when they're being killed by someone who fits their narrative? And what's the narrative? Well, a white nationalist or white supremacist. Therefore, the murderer is connected with conservatives in America. Therefore, the murderer is, con is connected with Donald Trump. Therefore, the murderer is connected with gun owners in America. Therefore, the murder is connected with uh, anyone that wants secure borders. And on and on it goes. I knew immediately, as soon as I heard that an alleged white nationalist or white supremacist was responsible for this, that people were going to be saying, you see, it's because of Donald Trump. You see, it's these American conservatives who want more secure borders. You see, it's this Islamophobia that these people are raising. Friends, that is unjust, unfair, illogical, and dead wrong. This horrific massacre is the responsibility of an evil man, a demented man. And there may be some people in different countries who support this type of mentality. But the fact is, conservative Americans are not going around killing people in mosques. And conservative Americans are, are not rejoicing when they hear reports of the slaughter of Muslims in a mosque. That's not the way it works. And there's nothing that Donald Trump said that is going to directly contribute to this man doing what he did. In fact, if I'm correct in the manifesto, the guy wrote the killer. He doesn't like Donald Trump. In any case, let us not use the blood of these slaughtered people 
as as some type of political football. Let's not use their blood to grease our political arguments and support our own ideologies. God forbid. This is a tragedy. And, and, and if we're going to be fair and right about this, where is the same media when it comes to denouncing the slaughter of innocent Christians at the hands of radical Muslims in Nigeria? Sometimes on a daily basis in the last few days, well over 100 slaughtered. Where's the media's outrage over that? Where's even the media's reporting over it? The double standards are more than glaring. In fact, for the, the many liberals shouting in America, Black Lives Matter, why don't Black Lives Matter when they're Black Lives of Christians in Nigeria? Why? Why don't, why don't we talk about the blood of African Americans and we should talk about that? We absolutely should talk about the blood of African Americans when an African American is, is, is slain simply for the color of his skin. But, but what, what, a, what about the blood of Africans being slain for no other reason except they're Christians? The hypocrisy, the double standard is more than glaring. Please, let's not politicize tragic events like this. Let's have a heart of compassion for those who are being slaughtered, be they Muslim, be they Christian, be there anyone else, and, and, and let's act righteously in response. All right, I wanted to share that, needed to share that. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Tyler in Boston. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh, what's on your mind, sir, about the pre-trib rapture? Yes, Dr. Brown, thank you for taking my call. Sure thing. Um, first of all, I, I want to say I have tremendous love and respect for you, and I pray for your ministry, and I, I love what you do. I think you're a tremendous voice for the kingdom of God. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, okay, so here's my uh, my question. Um, because, and understand the, the uh, you know, I value your opinion so much, so I want to get really your take on on this being an exception, I see, and what you what you you deem as important for having explicit scripture. Okay, um, for example, we have I know that explicit scripture is very important to you, and we have explicit scripture that 144,000 Jews are sealed, and we also have explicit scripture that the image kills everyone who won't worship it. And then in Revelation 7, which is before the seventh seal, there's a multitude of believers who died in the tribulation already in heaven. So they're already dead before the seventh seal. So um, my question is, if you believe there's more people that are sealed that aren't killed by the image, why don't you feel it's necessary to have explicit scripture for those, since we do have explicit scripture for the 144,000 Jews that are sealed? Yeah, so Tyler, first, uh, thanks again for the kind words, and what a great way to start. So as fellow believers who love the Lord, we can differ here. The first thing is, everything in the book of Revelation, the visions, the numbers, they could all be symbolic, okay? In, in other words, when we see 12 times 12,000 uh, of the 144,000, is that a literal 144,000, or is that symbolic of the fullness of Israel? Is that symbolic of the final harvest of Israel? I don't know. In other words, we all heard about the 144,000 sealed mentioned twice in Revelation, but I don't know that that is referring to literal 144,000 people, all all virgins who've never known a woman or an undefiled, or is it referring to the fullness of Israel, the fullness of the Jewish people saved and sanctified at the end of the age? That's, That's one thing. The second thing is, 
that we see ongoing in the book of Revelation that God is preserving believers through the tribulation. And, and that's, that's my big point, that uh, when people say, well, how could there be anyone there if they don't worship the mark of the beast, they'll be killed? Well, many will be killed. Many will be martyred. As you reference the end of Revelation 7, it speaks of a multitude that no one could number and, and that they will, uh, they will be killed in the tribulation. Is that talking about through church history or just the end of the age? Let's just say it's the end of the age. So, yes, many will be martyred, but many others will be preserved. You read about believers on the earth after that, uh, and, and they're being persecuted for their faith after that. So some are protected sovereignly, supernaturally. That's what we believe during this final tribulation period, that there'll be great persecution, but that God will also protect his people. Some will die. Others will be supernaturally protected. Hey, thank you, sir, for the call. Good way to get us started. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back, friends, to the Line of Fire with our new book, Due Out Tomorrow, Not Afraid of the Antichrist. This is your opportunity to call in and tell me why you differ. I really want to hear from you. 866-348-7884. You know, some will say, look, if no one knows the day or the hour of the Lord's return, then how can it be that there's going to be a post-trib rapture? Because we know there's a seven-year tribulation period, and you could just say, okay, here's the beginning of the tribulation. It started on this date, counts seven years, and you get to the day and the hour of Jesus' return. Well, I, I have a problem with that for a number of reasons. First, Let's just say there is a distinct seven-year period at the end of the age. Let's say that seven is not symbolic of, of fullness of suffering or something like that. Let's, let's just say that there's a literal seven-year period at the end of the age called the tribulation, or, or half of it is the great tribulation. All of, the great, all of it is the great tribulation. Either way, let's, let's agree that there is a seven-year distinct period. First, who in the world says you're going to know exactly when it started? You're going to be able to count. Oh, this was the, the beginning of it. How are you going to know that? Look, I've had people say, I think we're in the tribulation now. I've, I've heard all kinds of things. So who's to say that you're going to be able to know exactly this is when it started? That's number one. Number two, Jesus did tell us that for us, we'll know the times and the seasons. And Paul writes this, that we, we won't be caught off guard. This won't be like a thief in the night coming for us as believers. All right. So that's, that's another thing. Number one, Who's to say, well, we can exactly start counting? Okay, this first day of the tribulation or first, uh, first hour. Who's, who's to say that? Secondly, the Lord gives us signs. When you see this happening, lift your head, rejoice. Your redemption draws near. So we're supposed to know it's getting close, all right? Third, he doesn't say no one knows the times or the seasons, but no one knows the day or the hour. We should know it's getting really close. It's getting super close. We just don't know the exact day or hour. And then lastly, Jesus said, for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So how is that actually going to work itself out? God knows the final details, but the overall, we should know. We should be aware. That should not be a surprise. 866-34-TRUTH. Want to go back to the phones, and let's see here. We go to Elizabeth. No, we don't. 
Let's go to Dan in Las Vegas. Welcome to the line of fire. Uh, how are you doing? Good. Need you to speak up, please, sir. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm just I'm calling because uh, this has been a long-time interest of mine as far as the subject of the pre-tribulation rapture is concerned. Um, I even intended myself to, to write a book on the subject, oh. uh, only because... Only because um, what I read, for the most part, from those who are either post-trib or pre-rat or mid-trib, uh, operate of a number of what I believe are misconceptions. Uh, let me give you an example. Sure. Uh, much, much of what is written with regards to the post-trib position is based on Matthew 24. You would agree with that? Nope. I'd say that's, you know, one of many, 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 many points. You know, one of 10 or but 20 or 30 or 40. Not, not okay. much. I'll, I'll just say that's one, one contributing factor. But I could argue at all, Matthew 24 could be 100% off the table. And I would, I would argue it just as clearly and strongly. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll bow to your uh, greater expertise on, on that particular point. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Uh, in my conversations with people, that is perhaps the number one verse they will cite to defend their position. Now, whether there are other verses or not, uh, we can talk about that. But uh, what I want to point out with regards to Matthew 24 and regards to Matthew in general, uh, and I don't want you to take this in the wrong way. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, You're good. Because, uh, uh, what is written in Matthew is primarily directed towards the Jews. The entire gospel starts off with a uh, genealogy that is based on Abraham. Now, ah, oh, it's uh, not true. It's not true. Absolutely not true. Well, who else is okay. included in the gene? Who else is included in the genealogy? Quite intentionally. I, um, let, let me finish my point, please. No, but but uh, I, di- I, di- you- I differ. I differ that it's yes, it's written for Jews. Okay, but uh, all right. I, I, I just- differ. Because you, who else is included in the genealogy? Very significantly. I agree that there are Gentiles in that genealogy. Gentile women, Gentile women, and then you also yeah. have the account of the the centurion, the man of great faith, Matthew eight. Many will come from the nations, and the children of the king will be on the outside. All right, the woman of great faith, Matthew fifteen, the Syrophoenician woman. So one of Dr. Matthew's Brown. great themes is salvation of the nations. Doctor Brown, can I at least? finish making my point before you try a rebuttal. Okay, I, but, but uh, I, haven't, I haven't agreed with your premises, and I'm just, I, I'm just I, trying I realize to... You're not going to, I, know, I realize you're not going to agree, but I'm trying to make a full point here, not just half a point. Then you can disagree with the full point if you're... Okay, leaving. I'm just trying to be respectful to a, to a bunch of callers. That I want to give everyone time, so I'm, I'm just doing our best to major on what we differ with, Okay. Uh, let me point out something with regards to specifically to Matthew 24, um, and that is uh, with regards to the gathering of the elect. Um, my point in bringing this up is that the elect uh, are the Jews, and that the gathering of the elect is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy written in Jeremiah 32:37. I'll quote it for you. It says, I will surely gather them from the lands where I banished them in my furious anger, 
and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. Obviously, if, if the Lord is going to bring them back, they are not currently living in safety. So this is a future prophetic word in regards to what the Lord will do specifically for the Jews. This is Jeremiah. Then in Isaiah 11, 12, it says, He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. And in Psalm 106, 47, it says, Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Then in Isaiah 27, 12, it says, In that day the Lord will thresh from the the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt, and you, Israel, will be gathered one by one. Let me make one final point here. The word for gather in Matthew 24 is episunago. It is not harpazo. Harpazo is a separate word with a separate definition. If you research all the instances in which harpazo is used, you will find that it refers to an instantaneous, unassisted gathering by the Lord himself to a point of his specific direction. In that case, the harpazo, the rapture, as we know it, is to the clouds. And every example of Scripture that uses that word uses it by that same definition. The word for gather is ipkisanago, and it is not the word found in Matthew 24. So that verse, or that series of verses, cannot be used as a defense for a post-trib rapture. Yeah, actually they can. But I I love what you just said, and, and I'm with you. But you missed the big point, which is that this happens when the Lord returns. And when he returns, uh, what, what, when is this, what is one of the great signs of this in Matthew 24, that the sound of what, a great, great trumpet, correct? When are we caught up to, when are we caught up, when are we caught up to meet the Lord? What is Paul? Dan, 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 I let you speak without interruption, okay? When are we caught up to meet the Lord? What does it say? What does it say? First Thessalonians four with a trumpet blast. What does it say in First Corinthians fifteen? The last trumpet. Okay, so Matthew twenty four is describing that last trumpet. Unless you're going to tell me there's a trumpet after the last trumpet, in which case it's not the last no. trumpet. All right, so no, we are caught up to meet the Lord. He descends, and that could be when he regathers exiles. Even if you wanted to interpret it like that, no problem. Even if even if I went with your interpretation, no problem whatsoever. He's coming unless there is a trumpet after the last trumpet. So you're just, you're just assuming certain things. I believe that when the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom on the earth, that he, we, he will regather the scattered uh, Israelites Dr. around the Brown, world. You know the reputation to the last trumpet. Otherwise, you wouldn't be uh, uh, writing an entire book on the subject. The last trumpet, as mentioned in that verse, does not refer to the last trumpet of Revelation. Why? <laughs> exactly. Paul, that's Paul. the whole right. So Dan, that that's the whole point. You, the last trumpet doesn't mean the last trumpet, and we're not even no. talking about Revelation. We're talking about Matthew twenty-four. So you're saying that there's a trumpet after the last trumpet. So last doesn't mean last. I, I believed Don't all this, Dan, me. and I taught it. Uh, Dan, here's what troubles me: you, you present something, I give you a simple answer, and you respond as if I didn't say, as if I'm like mocking your position or. I, I heard you out. I explained why it has nothing to do with refuting a pre-trib rapture whatsoever. Nothing. 
All right. It does not say that we're not caught up at that time. It does not. Even if that refers to the physical regathering of Israel ex- exiles, fine. It happens at the last trumpet, which is when we're caught up to meet the Lord. So e- e- either way, even if I read Matthew the same way you were reading, it doesn't impinge on my argument or understanding whatsoever. Not, not in the least. But you then think you it's have a, a, no verse that tells you, and you have no verse that tells you exactly when the rapture is going to occur. And that is my point. No, of course, of course we do. Of course we do. It's at the last trumpet. It's at the end of the age. There are many other verses. See, you, here's the problem. You made everything stand on Matthew 24. I said I can argue my whole point without Matthew 24, okay? And now you come back to saying, well, without Matthew 24, you have no point. No, that's your point, Dan. That's why the better course of action when I said I could make my whole point without Matthew 24, you should have said, okay, where is that? That would have been more constructive. So I appreciate the call, but you missed it where you started majoring on Matthew 24. I'll explain. We come back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on today's Line of Fire. If you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, by all means, give me a call. Let's discuss why. But please, let's do it in a way where we can differ with one another cordially in the Lord. 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884 is the number to call. Our previous caller was suggesting that Matthew 24, where Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days, X, Y, Z will happen. But that is speaking specifically of the regathering of the Jewish people from around the world. It has nothing to do with the catching up of God's people to meet the Lord when he returns. If you believe in a pre-trib rapture, you believe in a secret coming of Jesus at any moment, it could be right now, where he secretly takes us out right before the tribulation begins or halfway through the tribulation, depending on your theology, catches us up. So he, he secretly descends, secretly takes us out, ascends to heaven where we're with him for seven years while there's tribulation on earth, and then he returns with us at the end of the age. If you believe in a post-tribulation rapture, as Craig Keener and I do in our new book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Do Not Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture, what we understand is this, that the Lord returns, we're waiting for his glorious appearing, that he returns for the whole world to see, that he catches us up to meet him, and that we descend with him. In other words, that we now escort him down as opposed to him coming all the way here and reversing and going back. So the previous caller said, no, Matthew 24 is written for the Jews primarily. And Matthew 24 says, after the tribulation of those days, that's when the Lord returns, etc. And if we don't have that verse to prove rapture, then we have no verse that says when it happens. Well, Matthew 24 has parallels in Mark 13 and Luke 21. And no one's saying that Mark and Luke were written both primarily for a Jewish audience. Quite the contrary. And they talk about things in similar language. That's the first thing. The second thing is we we have other verses. 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul's explicit that the return of the Lord will not happen until first there's the great apostasy and the man of sin is revealed, the Antichrist. And he'll set himself up in the temple of God to be worshipped as God with all types of counterfeit miracles and things. So until that happens, until that happens, the Lord won't return. He's telling us that, all right? And then also, in, in for example, in, in Luke, the 17th chapter, Jesus gives us 
numerous specifics. And he, and he says this, uh, Luke, the 17th chapter, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. And, and he continues explaining there. And then elsewhere, Luke 17, uh, Luke 21 says, when you see these things happening, it was the world's going to go on and think, well, we're just going to keep living and partying and doing what we're doing until destruction comes. All right. But notice he says, Luke 21, when you see these things, that's when you look up, your redemption is drawing near. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Adam in Iowa. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I just wanted to ask a couple questions, if that would be okay. Yeah, go for it. So you just mentioned 2 Thessalonians 2, and I really appreciate that. And my first question comes from that. How could the Apostle Paul, in any meaningful sense, exhort the Thessalonians to not be soon shaken in mind or troubled regarding the day of the Lord, if when that day arrived, there would first be a great apostasy from the Christian faith, and then the man of sin would be revealed? How exactly would that be occasion for Paul to attempt to console and encourage the Thessalonians to not be afraid if we're to assume that they're going to be in the middle of those two events? Ah, first, they were already suffering persecution. He uses them as a model for courage in suffering persecution in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. That's the first thing. The second thing is he didn't want them to believe a false teaching that the day of the Lord had just come and they had missed it somehow. That was his big point to them. They didn't need encouragement to be strong in the midst of persecution and suffering. That's all they knew from day one as believers. Rather, his comfort was not, you're going to escape this. That was never, that's not the issue at all. He said, you're going to get relief, 2 Thessalonians 1. You'll get relief from suffering when? When the Lord comes in blazing fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God. That's when he'll come to be glorified by his people. So relief won't come until then. They understand that. Paul said in Acts 14, 22, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So they were already an example of persevering in the midst of tribulation and suffering. That's not what they needed the encouragement about. They, they had heard some strange teaching that, well, no, it passed. You missed it. It's go-. And, and that's what he's saying. No, 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 absolutely not. That, that's not going to happen. The day of the Lord won't happen until these various things take place. Since they haven't taken place, don't let anyone shake you. It would, it would, be like I'm you know, saying, well, there was a secret rapture that happened last week and, and all these people missed it. It's like, no, that's, that's not going to happen. These things happen first. So that's the, the simple answer to that question. It was not about consoling them that you're going to escape suffering. Quite the contrary. They were a model for persevering in the midst of suffering already. Okay, thank you. That was a very good, very clear answer, and I appreciate that very much. Um, my second question is this. Um, I don't know if you would personally believe this, but I've heard from some others who would be post-tribulational that pastors who are not preparing their people to face the Antichrist, that somehow they're failing and they're not doing what they're supposed to do. But I see it differently. And my question is this, if I am prepared and I'm preparing my flock to meet the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer, our Creator, and the terrible Judge of the living and the dead, Will I not also be prepared 
and preparing others to face any hardship, including the man of sin. Yeah, I, I differ with the idea that we're supposed to be teaching people to get ready for the Antichrist, because that would mean everyone doing it through all generations until the final generation has been preparing people in vain. What we should be doing is recognizing First John 2, just as an Antichrist is coming, there are many Antichrists already. That's one thing. Second thing, in this world, John 16, 33, in this world we'll have tribulation, but in Jesus we overcome the world. So, yeah, I, I agree we should, we should be calling people to live in anticipation of the Lord's return, the end of 1 John 2, beginning of 1 John 3. In light of his appearing, we should live with purity because the pure one is coming and he's going to utterly purify us when he comes. So we should be living in purity now. We should be living as people who are in this world, but not of it. And we should be living as those who can expect hostility, persecution, opposition until he returns. We should not be hoarding food just in case, you know, it's the time of the tribulation. It's one thing to be prepared for like hurricanes and emergencies and to have storage, you know, like emergency stuff like that. But the fact that, you know, that the, the wrong focus, Adam, for either side, sir, is to focus everything on the seven year period. Either we're going to be out of here any second and, and or or or, well, we better be ready to go through the tribulation. No, we should be looking for King Jesus. It's the what more than the when. The New Testament emphasis is on the what rather than the when. That's the first thing. So I agree. We are focused on his return. Secondly, we know in this world there's going to be hardship, opposition, and we're, we're prepared for that, whether it comes from the Antichrist or anybody else. All right? That's all in God's grace. And three, we are living with a sense of urgency because this world is falling apart. People need Jesus, and we only have one life to live. So we're in sync, brother. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Tell you what, I've got a post-trib caller. I'm going to get to him in a moment. I want to get to all of our pre-trib callers first or some more. Uh, Let's go to Dominic in Missouri. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, what's up, brother? I just want to let you know uh, real quick before we talk. I love you, and uh, your debates have really blessed me in hard times. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to hear that. Yes, sir. Okay, so just two verses. Uh, the first one, Revelation 3.10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will keep also keep you from the hour of trial that is to come on the world, to test the inhabitants of the earth. That would only make sense to be a pre-trib or a pre-Jacob's trouble rapture because— um, after he comes to rule and reign, there would be no testing of the inhabitants. Okay, so the first thing is, who was he writing that to? Who did John speak that to initially? Well, he was writing that to one of the churches, correct? All right, so did the it have any relevance? Doing- right, so let's just say I agree that it has a relevance for the end of the world. Let's just say I agreed, okay? Right. What, did it right. Mean, what did it mean to those people, to those believers? Well, I would just put myself in that time and go, I'm living right for God, and I'm doing everything I can. I'm living righteously, um, and, and God's telling me that, you know, you've endured patiently. You won't have to go through my wrath, you know? All right, but, but what did it mean to—if if his wrath was not poured out, if, if you're taking it as a, an explicit promise that we won't be here in the Great Tribulation, right, then the verse right. had no meaning to them. Can you expand upon that? Yeah, okay. Let's let's just say that Paul's writing to the Corinthians, okay? And right. he, and he says, 
uh, because you've been faithful, when severe famine come, comes on the earth, you'll be protected from it, right? But right. they live and die, and there's never severe famine, and centuries and centuries and centuries go by, there's never severe famine. What did that verse mean to those first believers? It had no meaning because there was no severe famine. My point is— right, but, but also, like, it's, it's almost like, you know, history repeats itself. There's nothing new under the sun. It's oh, like oh, okay. he's saying that, like, hey, if I come then, then you'll be held from it. But if I don't but come it, then, then these people living just like you will be but held he doesn't, But it. he doesn't say that, though. It, for history to repeat said, itself, for history to repeat <laughs> itself, it must have been that they were protected from some trial that touched the whole world. All right. And that right. it'll apply to others as well. So here's your simple answer. John 17, 15. Jesus said, I am not praying to the father. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect uh -huh. them from the evil one. He's going to protect us from whatever wrath is poured out right here while we're in the midst of it, just as he protected Israel when he poured out his plagues on Egypt. That's what he does. He All knows right. how to deliver well, that, his people. So well, that was my, uh, that was my gotcha verse. Cause I, that, that verse is a little hard for me to understand. I feel like he's speaking to me, telling me that that's for the preacher, but we'll, we'll put that one to rest. Oh, I got one more for you. Um, when he's saying, um, you know, two will be plowing at the field, blase, blase, yeah. one will be taking one left. Yeah. Um, if if we're living in the tribulation where you have the mark of the beast um, to receive money for work, then why would a, a, a follower of Christ, a, a you know righteous man, be working with a lost person and one's taking one's left? Yeah, so first thing is, we see in Revelation that there's going to be believers here right to the end. So we're going to be side by side with the world right to the end. But the one taken, read in context, is taken in judgment. They're taken in judgment. It's the wicked that are taken. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, there, there's... A whole other issue, which is, is Revelation entirely future? Should Revelation be interpreted historically? Should it be interpreted symbolically? So that's, that's a whole other issue. And let's just understand that a lot of end times theology that we're familiar with now was pretty much unknown through church history until the 1830s. Doesn't mean it has to be wrong. Just means that what many of us grew up believing and were used to is not necessarily what's been taught or believed or understood before. And please understand this. Uh, uh, Craig Keener and I have been saved between us, what, 80 years or 90 years or something? I don't know what the exact total would be. And we've just now written a book on the subject. Our intent is not to divide or bash. We were asked to write it. We thought it would be useful to write it. And we lay out our views. We, we interact with the various verses that are used to argue against our position and we don't do it to bash because some of the finest friends I have and finest believers I know on the planet are pre-trib and others I've worked with for decades and don't even know what they believe about it. We've never discussed it, interestingly enough. We've worked together side by side. So if you want to get the book, it, it releases tomorrow, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture. If you get it from our website, AskDrBrown.org, you'll also get a link to the interview that I did with Dr. Keener on this subject. 
All right, we go to Mark in Raleigh, North Carolina. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, I uh, I really appreciate you, and I uh, particularly appreciate the way you handle people who disagree. You're very gracious, and uh, I it always makes me sad when the people that disagree aren't as gracious back to you as you are to them. So uh, I just want to ask you three questions that uh, I think are simple that maybe you can answer yes or no. Number one is would you consider the thousand years that John talks about in Revelation to be synonymous with the kingdom that Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, you know, the, the promise to David, uh, Isaiah 11, Isaiah chapter 2, yes, lots I of would. passages. Yep. Okay. Number two. Number two, do you consider First um, Corinthians, I mean, First Thessalonians 4 and First Corinthians 15, you know, the, the traditional verses yep. used for the rapture, as when people are caught up, they would receive their glorified body. They'd be changed into a uh, wink of an eye. Are they getting yes, their sir. glorified bodies at that time? Yes? Yeah, yeah, I okay. understand that to be well, one and the same with the second coming, but yes, exactly. That's when it happens. Okay. Now, if that being true, in Isaiah 65, where Isaiah talks about, uh, it's obvious he's talking about the kingdom because he's talking about the same thing that he's talking about in Isaiah 11, you know, the wolf and the lamb laying down together, the, the yeah. ox chewing. Well, if that's the kingdom, then... In that passage, it talks about people dying, people mm-hmm. being born, people yep. not living to be a hundred. So yes, you would have people alive in the kingdom in mortal bodies. So yep. if the rapture takes place just before the kingdom, then how does anybody have a mortal body in the kingdom? Well, the what about planet? everybody else on the planet? What, what Doesn't it say in Zechariah 14 that the survivors of the nations that attack Jerusalem will go up to Jerusalem to worship? In other words, yeah, there, let's right. say there are, there are billions of people on the planet. Many that are in rebellion will be destroyed when the Lord returns. Some say that's when you have the sheep and the goat uh, judgment. But then, so there so are going to be glorified... lost people in the kingdom. Uh, no, no, no. The, there'll be rebels who are destroyed. Okay, but the survivors of the nations. Remember, there 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 will be those that are caught up to meet the Lord. Right? Scripture is explicit on that. Okay. Right. And and then. Well, let me just ask this out of curiosity. In your view, with a pre-trib rapture, who enters the millennial kingdom? What, what, what happens well, to us? We, I, I don't we hold really... a classical. I don't hold a classical dispensationalism in that you've got two different groups: uh, the heavenly group and the earthly group. You've got the way I understand it is if but, but yeah, that, who, who at enters, the rapture, yeah. who enters the millennial the kingdom? Ra- in your view, the the survivor. The saints that survive the tribulation, that become believers during the tribulation, enter the kingdom with mortal bodies. And then also the saints who have been raptured previously, uh, pre-trib, they come back after the marriage feast of the Lamb and the beam of judgment, and they're going to have some sort of, and I don't know the exact answer, but they're going to have some sort of responsibilities. They're going to be judged at the beam of judgment of what mm-hmm. they've done, right and wrong, and they'll have responsibilities in the kingdom. And as strange as it sounds, it seems like, you know, I'm not going to go to the, the stake over this, but it seems like that you've got uh, people with glorified bodies, 
right, and people with mortal bodies in the kingdom. Exactly. And, All right. So, so we but, so we agree on that. Everybody, you're, right. Your crux, and I'm just jumping in, uh, in in deference to other callers. Your crux is the people entering in. You see it as the saints who survived the tribulation. I see it as those that uh, sheep and the goats, for example, that were kind to persecuted Jews or persecuted believers that treated them kindly. We do know explicitly, it says that the survivors of the nations that attacked Jerusalem will enter. So yeah, there, there will not, if the people were born again, believers, they would have been caught up to meet the Lord when he returned. So these are people who are not yet born again, believers. So you have born again, believers who are born again, but now they just live through the tribulation, uh, th- through the millennium. I say, if they're born again, we go to meet with the Lord. And then the survivors of the nations, this for God to work out, will enter this kingdom where now he rules and reigns. And you still will have some sin because it says a man who dies at a hundred, you know, a sinner dies at a hundred will be considered a child. So he'll rule and reign with an iron rod. And that's why at the end of it, right, what's going to happen? There's going to be mass rebellion. So there will be a glorious kingdom, but still at the end of it, human beings will rebel. Why? Because they're not all born again people. So it works perfectly well with, with my view. I appreciate the question very much. Just had to jump in and deference to others. Uh, let's go to John in Ontario. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. You, you basically just answered my question with the last one. So ah, I'll, all I'll right. All right. Well, well, thanks for holding so long. Sorry, we, we got, got beat you to the punch. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, let's go to Fred in Richmond, Virginia. Welcome to the line of fire. Yes, Dr. Brown. Th- thanks for taking my call. Sure. Yeah, I just uh, wanted to say that uh, many years ago, I used to be uh, you know, pre-trib rapture uh, believer. And uh, I think that especially when the Left Behind series came out and sold millions upon millions of books and mm-hmm. it really had an influence on many people, and it did me. I read every one of them. I thought, yeah, this has got to be it. Until a friend of mine said, well, have you ever really studied and looked at it closely? And I said, no. And until I did, uh, yeah, uh, I finally did. And, and come to find out, yeah, it it, it doesn't read as a pre-trib rapture view. Uh and uh, on top of that, uh, I was told that uh, for maybe 1,800 years from the time of Christ yeah. up to 1,800, that uh, the major theologians never taught uh, a pre-trib rapture, and there are major theologians today that don't teach it either. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, and, anyway. and fa- yeah. I mean, the majority of theologians worldwide would, would, would not hold to it. It remains a minority position. It doesn't make it right or wrong. But yeah, for me, Fred, I— the church in which I was saved taught it. I therefore believed it. When I had read through the Bible five times, cover to cover, and memorized about 4,000 verses, uh, 3,600 or so in six months, memorizing 20 verses a day, I thought, boy, I really don't know a lot about this subject, the difference between the rapture and the second coming and the whole. Oh, that's odd. I'm reading the Bible day and night, and I, I don't really understand this. So I, I bought all the books that taught me about it, the J. Dwight Pentecost and John Walford and William E. Blackstone and and Clarence Larkin and the classic dispensationalist authors of the past and present and so on and devoured it and became very dogmatic and aggressive in terms as part of my personality then. And um, then when I read something challenging, whether this was a historic view or a more recent view that no one had heard of before, then I said, wait a second, wait a second, forget that. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know when it started. 
But I know I didn't get this reading the Bible alone. I got it reading books that told me what to believe. And then I put the whole system together. Once I went back and read it again without the other books, just reading the Bible, I thought, oh, this is not in Scripture. Again, my view, don't divide over it. Uh, let's just see. Uh, Jason in Youngsville, North Carolina, time is really short. Can you dive right in? Uh, yeah, thanks for taking my call. Love your ministry. Uh, it's really just, I want to kind of give a a point of clarification, uh, if you could, for the earlier call talking about the last trumpet. Yeah. Um, I've heard talking about the um, the event will happen during the Feast of Trumpets, so the last trumpet was the last trumpet on the Feast of Trumpets, as opposed to the last trumpet in Revelation. I was wondering if you could kind of give me your viewpoints on it falling on that feast time, and that's the significance of last trumpet is the last trumpet of the feast of trumpets. Yeah, Jason, thank you so much for asking it, and that would have been the point that our earlier caller was was making. Uh, first, I, I don't see support for that. In other words, on the Feast of Trumpets, why would it be the last trumpet of that day? In other words, it, or where is there a significance to a last trumpet? I don't know of any Jewish tradition that would back that or that that would be a natural way of, of thinking whatsoever. Rather, when you have the Bible talking about he's coming with a trumpet blast, a trumpet blast, a trumpet blast, a trumpet blast, and you see it in Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1, Thess- and 1 Corinthians 15 and the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and his Messiah, to me, that's the obvious last. So that other view, in my opinion, would be grasping at straws with all respect to it. All right, more calls tomorrow.